is Luke 5, 27 through 32. Um, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. As I said, it was so great to be with you this morning. My voice is a little hoarse because uh, I yell a lot, not at my kids, just at other things in life. So um, sometimes that's not true. I, re- I don't know. I don't know where to go from that. Here we go. Um, I am excited to get into this text with you. We have been in a practice of community series for some time now and are going to continue to be through the month of November. Uh, But today we're going to look at this text and Jesus eating with Levi, who becomes Matthew. We'll talk about that in a bit, Uh, the tax collector. But I'm I'm just excited to be here with you this morning, to encounter God with you this morning, uh, to sit under his scriptures with you. But I want to begin thinking about the long history of sports teams who, when they win a championship, get invited They uh, receive an invitation to go to the White House and share a meal with the sitting president. And this is not a new thing for America's best sport, its greatest sport, baseball, clearly. Uh, This began in 1865, where the winner of the World Series would be invited to go to the White House. And much later, this other sport that got included, football, began, the, the, the winner of the Super Bowl was invited to go to the White House beginning in 1980. Notice 115 years after baseball. Just want to say that for the record. Um, and some of the stories about this interaction between the president and uh, athletes on a sports team are quite funny. Uh, in the 2000s, Manny Ramirez, if you're a baseball fan, played for the Boston Red Sox. And they won the World Series, and Manny and the team was invited to come, and Manny Ramirez said, I can't go because my grandmother is sick. I have to attend to my grandmother. And everyone believed him until the next year. They won the World Series again and were invited to the White House, and he said, I can't go. My grandmother is sick. I must attend to my grandmother. And we see this kind of interaction between athletes and president. Uh, We see Larry Bird say, if the president really wants to meet me, he knows where I am. I'll be in Indiana. We see Michael Jordan never show up at the White House because he's always playing golf somewhere in the country. But more recently, and likely because of technology, the the ability of this moment um, has been heightened. This invitation and its reception has actually become quite politicized. In 2017, President Trump tweeted out after the Golden State Warriors had won that they were invited, and Steph Curry was asked about it in the uh, interview after the game, and he hesitated in his response, and so President Trump rescinded the invitation to him and the entire team. But the goal here is by no means political. What I want, what the question I want to ask you this morning is, if you were invited to the White House for being the best whatever, would you go? Would you accept or would you decline the invitation? And maybe that's just a curious thought for you. What if you were invited to go play a round of golf at Mar-a-Lago with President Trump? Or to go to Governor Governor Gavin Newsom's house for dinner or Kevin McCarthy's Wyoming retreat? Like whatever the thing is that grates against you a little bit, it's important that as we come to this text, as we encounter Jesus, we like wrestle with some of these questions. Because when I read this, when I think about this story, the age-old question from the early 1990s, age-old early 1990s, yes, I recognize the oxymoron, comes in, what would Jesus do? WWJD, does anyone still have a bracelet at home that they're afraid to wear? Chris Brayton would have a bracelet at home. (laughs) Lord bless you. I think we should bring it back. Um, I think that my son's trying to fundraise to go on a trip right now. I think he could sell WWJD bracelets and they'd be a thing in no time. (laughs) And I don't know that WWJD or the what would Jesus do line is always the right question. 
I think it often gets used and abused as a catch-all for supposing that we're supposed to read like four biographies in the scriptures, the Gospels, about Jesus, this man who lived in the ancient Near East, and now he's supposed to be able to answer all of our 21st century modern questions. That doesn't really feel fair, in my opinion, Um, but I do think that this morning and the question that we're wading into uh, is worth asking that question, and this is why. Jesus, in the story of the scriptures, gets in a lot of trouble. He gets in a lot of trouble for lots of different reasons. He gets in trouble for healing people on the Sabbath. He gets in trouble for allowing a woman to wash his feet with, his, with her tears and her hair. He gets in trouble for calling people whitewashed tombs, an insult that I think we should bring back just like the WWJD bracelet. But more than any other, Jesus does not turn down an invitation to dinner when he is supposed to. Jesus gets invited to the White House and says yes, regardless of who the dinner is with. Jesus eats with people he is not supposed to eat with. This is his greatest religious crime of the day. He eats with sinners and with tax collectors. The thing that Jesus did that was the most controversial was sitting down to the table with those considered unworthy, unclean, different, and dirty. Just eating with people who were far from God ruined his reputation more than any other thing. And that is why this idea of hospitality, radical hospitality at that, that Jesus embodies is so revolutionary so revolutionary that we as his followers do not often practice it today. Because it just may, if we were to practice it, it just may ruin our reputation too. We have been exploring the idea of church around the table of church as family, about opening up our tables and our homes and our lives to one another within the community of Christ. And by and large, most of us, many of us, are very comfortable with that idea. We know that we have enough in common to sustain a mealtime together once a week. And some of us feel it's too invasive, like opening my table regularly to the same people may feel uh, uh, like that's a bit too invasive. But most of us, most of the refrain in the room is like, this actually is a deep craving for our souls to have a place to belong and be home with a small group of people who would like know me in a deep and intimate and personal way. But today we're gonna like continue in our practice of community, but a bit with, with a twist, a bit with a missional arm to it, a missional look. Because the reality is if you think breaking bread with other followers of Jesus is too invasive, you should know we, or I would say Jesus is like just getting started. The idea of opening up the table and breaking bread with people far from God is very uncomfortable compared to breaking bread with the people in this room. And that's exactly where Jesus is going. He regularly, like it's a a regular rhythm, a regular habit in his life to break bread, to share meal, to sit at the table with people who are far from God, who are very different than he is, who are very unlike him. And so that's how we wind up at today's passage. I'm going to read it again, Luke 5. If you have a Bible, I'd appreciate it if you opened it to Luke 5, starting in verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, from the very beginning, when Jesus comes on the scene, he is disrupting the status quo, the religious status quo in particular of the day. He is messing with people's clean ways of life, 
that are neat and controlled and tidy. And honestly, if you have followed Jesus for any length of time, he should be doing this with you too. He should be disrupting some of the tidy elements that you think are a part of like comfort and control. He should be disrupting those things. Generally speaking, we all like things clean or clean-ish, yeah? Like, can we agree with that? Like, I don't like cleaning things, but I do like when things are clean. No one loves a messy house. I don't ever walk into my house where my four sons have been playing all day long and making a beautiful, holy, sacred mess and think to myself, man, I cannot wait to get started cleaning this up. More generally, we run around trying to like find the limits of the amount of mess that we should be making or ensure that we never do the activities that make big messes like glitter. No one likes glitter. I'm convinced. If you're like a glitter crafter, we'll pray for you. But um, <laughs> glitter glue is like close enough, is it not? Like it's control? I don't know. So, but this idea... This idea of mess making, Jesus seems to have no problem with it. Jesus has no problem coming in and making messes of the controlled elements of his day. Jesus comes on the scene and quite literally, not literally, quite, Jesus comes on the scene and like drops a glitter bomb everywhere. It's like what, what Jesus does. There's glitter in the carpet and glitter in the hair. It's like everything is a mess to the religious elite. They like it clean and controlled. They're not a fan of Jesus and his mess-making ways. He comes in and disrupts, and he makes a mess, it seems like, at least to them, of everything, everywhere he goes. And that's what's happening here in Luke 5. That's what's happening in this text. Jesus goes out to a tax collector, Levi, who is later named Matthew, and it's important that we understand that as Jesus invites this tax collector, Levi, to follow him, that what a tax collector is. So just a little bit of context real quick. Um, what we see and what we know is this. The role of a tax collector in Rome is that of a Jewish person who has turned their back on their own people to partner with Rome who actively oppresses the Jewish people. Did you get that? Like, it's a Jewish person who's working on behalf of Rome to help oppress the Jewish people. Um, not a favorable person in Jewish culture. They make money, they, they get paid by overcharging people taxes that they must pay under the power and authority of Rome. So this person has the power and authority of Rome at their back saying, this is how much you have to pay me while skimming some off the top to create their own life of luxury. So that's who, like, that's who Levi is in this culture. And what's interesting about this is like Jesus goes to this, this man and invites him to follow him. And Levi says, yes, he does follow Jesus. But Jesus doesn't just stop there. Jesus shows up to like what the Jewish people would have considered this traitor. Jesus shows up to the traitor's house, which has been funded by abusing the Jewish community, the community that Jesus comes from. And he hangs out with the tax collector and his friends. Verse 29 says that there is a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. You see, this is not just Jesus interacting with a singular person. This is Jesus going to the space these types of people, people far from God, inhabit. This is not having a one-off conversation on the side of the road with someone who happens to be in a biker gang. This is like showing up to the biker gang bar. This is where like the feds might break in and you might get mistaken and arrested because you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's that sort of context. It's that sort of picture. Which first, like this should teach us something about God. Like think about that just for a second. God is willing to invade this context and put himself in this position to get to these types of people. This is where God's way of being higher than our ways from the book of Isaiah comes into play. You see, if it were up to me, there are people who I think are worthy to go to. And there are people who I think are not worthy to go to. There are people that I think it's worthy for me to open up my home to them. But there's other people that I, I don't think are worthy. If I'm being honest, I don't think are worthy for me to open up my home to them. 
And that's what's beautiful about who Jesus is and who God is, is it's not up to me. It's up to him. But Jesus seems to go to extraordinary lengths to include people. Hear that again. Jesus goes to extraordinary lengths to include people who would naturally be far off from the good news of the kingdom of God. He goes to far lengths to people who would naturally be far off from the good news of kingdom of God. Jesus invites, um, and we see this all throughout the scriptures. We see like Jesus invites himself to dinner with Zacchaeus, the wee little man in the tree, you remember? Like climbed up in the sycamore tree. Lord, he wanted to see all the things. But Jesus meets with Nicodemus, the religious elite leader in the dark, because Nicodemus has questions and he's not comfortable talking to him during the day. Jesus lets the woman of questionable character wash his feet with her tears. Jesus meets the adulterous woman at the well, and the list goes on and on. Jesus is going to lengths to include people who are far off and bring them into the kingdom of God. He is not staying in one place and posting up shop and say like, come to me. He is going to them. He is going to their world in their life and then bringing the kingdom of God with him into those spaces that they might encounter the goodness of God through the power of his spirit, through people. You see, if Jesus would have stayed in the religious bubble he was born into, there is no way that Levi ever ends up as a disciple. And that's one of the beautiful pictures of the kingdom of God, that the invitation to it is for everyone, whether you think they are worthy or not. If I were to remind us, well, there's multiple things I want to remind us of. I was going to say of anything, but that's not true. I would like to remind us that at one point in each and every one of our lives, there were people who were a part of the the inside family of God. There were people a part of the kingdom of God that would have looked at your and my life and by their own standard and merit and measure would have said, like, we don't belong. You and I, part of our story as we follow Jesus is that Jesus has invited us to the table when we weren't qualified to come. We must not forget, we must not forget that like our evaluation of worth is not what qualifies someone to come to the table, but Jesus' desire to bring you to the table is the thing that qualifies you. Jesus' desire to go after the woman at the well is the thing that qualifies her to come into the family of God. We see this a bit from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22, when he says, I will be all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. And he continues, I do all this for the sake of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, that I may share in its blessings. And Jesus embodies this belief that you and I today are invited to continue to embody, to work into who we are to work into practice, not into a theoretical idea, but into our actual lives. But you see, even in the text in in Luke 5, when Jesus embodies this reality about the kingdom of God, the Pharisees have a problem with it. They're not a fan. It doesn't make sense. Verse 30 says, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You see, the Pharisees, it's important to understand, the Pharisees are so bound up in their hope of holiness. And in this picture, this idea comes from like, if the Jewish people could clearly delineate who was in and who was out, if they could clearly delineate that they are holy to God, who is being faithful to God and who is not, then the Jews, the faithful Jews, could be considered holy again by God. And then maybe God would save them from Roman oppression or Roman occupation. And I say that just briefly to say, in their quest, the the Pharisees, in their quest for holiness, what they actually miss is the, the heart of God and what God has always been after. In their quest for holiness, they miss God's love for people, in particular the marginalized and the outsider. In their quest for God's favor, they actually miss God's heart. 
And this is why Jesus is very different than the Pharisees. He is God and embodies God's heart to the world. Jesus is not functioning from a place of trying to be correct, to earn favor. Jesus' motivation for what he does flows from his belonging with God in loving relationship with the Father and the Spirit, which begets the question today for your life, what is your motivation? Are you trying to, like on this hamster wheel, earn favor with God? Or are you living from a place of belonging with God? Are you living from a place of belonging with God? We see this again in Luke 11 when Jesus, to continue with the metaphor, throws some more glitter at a Pharisee. Luke 11:37 says this, When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table, but the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, as was custom. Verse 39, then the Lord said to him, now then, you Pharisee, clean the outside of the cup. So I want you to hear this again. I'll read it slower. Verse 39, then the Lord, Jesus, said to him, now then, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Verse 40, you foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. This Pharisee is shocked that Jesus does not make himself like clean. Uh, he doesn't wash up a bit. And here again, we see Jesus like making messes at this religious person's home. And, and, and this Pharisee comes and says, but Jesus, you didn't clean. And Jesus one-ups one him a bit and says, like, you cleaned the outside, but you did not clean the inside, implying that wickedness and darkness and filth, the wrong sorts of things still exist on the inside, that the exterior cleaning up does not fix the orientation of the Pharisee's heart, and that God is actually substantially less concerned with the exterior cleaning up than he is with the interior. And then Jesus quips, but did God not make them both? A reminder for the kids in the room, you still should take baths and showers. This is not like an excuse of like, Jesus said I didn't have to wash my body. I just had to wash my heart. That's, he says both. Like that's, that's what the text says. In the Greek too, I think. I don't read Greek. I'm not sure. But then Jesus kind of brings in the Old Testament commands and says, by taking care of the poor, you will be clean. Or another way of saying this would be orient your heart away from your own perception of cleanliness and holiness and start doing the work of caring for others. This is what Jesus says will make you clean. And then back in Luke 5, again, I want to like remember this picture as we conclude reading that section in Luke 11. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, in this text, in Luke 5, 27 through 32, Jesus makes clear the mission of God to pursue sinners, that they might be won through Christ's love and kindness to repentance, just like you have and just like I have. You see, positionally, we were sinners who have been called to repentance, to turn your life to follow the direction of Jesus in the world. And what we want to get after today is the idea of the mission of God, God's mission revealed in this story and in the person of Jesus. And it's put on display in breaking bread with those far from God, that through relationship with them, they might experience the kingdom of God. You see, for the last few months, we've been preaching on the practice of community for our church. As we have always envisioned and hoped for a time when we would move into house churches together, small communities of belonging and discipleship, of intimacy, of being known, of being family. And this is something we're really eager for. But what is imperative, what is important, what must exist together is that the table where we commune together in a house church setting, is not just reserved for saints, but is also equally reserved for sinners. 
It is imperative that as we move towards small communities, this must be a reality. That it is not one or the other, it is both, it is and. As our church moves into house churches, in the future, we must double down on the mission of God. We must double down on our role within that mission. If I'm honest, this is the great risk of like house church and small communities. Often house churches, small communities can become like museums of saints where we stagnantly live and are just the same old people in the same old room doing the same old sorts of things. And that is so far different from Christ's vision for community and Christ's vision for mission. In an essay about the necessity of Christian community, that's what the essay is about. John M. Perkins, who's a minister and civil rights leader, leads with a warning about Christian community. This is what he says. The movement of Christian community, where more and more Christians are seeking to share their lives and resources together at deeper and deeper levels, could very easily end up in groups of white, middle-class Christians talking themselves out of the loneliness and meaninglessness of the suburbs. If the end of Christian community's aim is like homogeneous, safe groups of life-minded people, we will hit that aim, and it will be a miss for the vision of the kingdom of God. But if the aim of Christian community is to create a space of belonging for both the insider and the outsider, to journey toward Christ together as a family following Jesus, we will become house churches that embody family for those in the family and a place of hospitality for those outside the family. The same sort of way that Jesus seems to have this open table for all both near and far to come to and experience the kingdom of God. As we move next year in the direction toward house church life, we must radically commit to a robust vision of mission in the world. And that does not belong to like the higher echelon of committed Christians. That belongs to anyone who professes the name of Jesus. That is not for like the super elite seminary studied apologetical genius. If I'm honest, my, like, my gut conviction is that what the world needs is not like more really well-studied Christians. What the world needs is people, Christians, everyday people like you and me, living out the good news of Jesus into the world. That is what the world needs. It does not need more seminary students. It needs more practitioners of the kingdom of God here and now. People living out the mission of God. The last couple of months, we've talked about how community happens around the table, but now we look at how the table is also for Jesus and hopefully for us this very intimate space of mission. And we're going to the next couple of weeks, get back to some of the vision for church around the table. But it's also very important that for a couple of weeks, this last teaching and this one today, that we spend some time understanding the high missional component of the table, at least in the life of Jesus, that it might become a part of ours as well. You see, one of the great temptations of house church or small community life is that it becomes very insular. And we forget that the reason we actually exist in small communities, is to stir one another toward mission in the world, toward God's mission in the world. To remind us that our table should not just be filled with followers of Jesus, but also people who are very far from following Jesus. Often Jesus, yes, had moments where he eats with his disciples. His whole life is baked into that. But he also loved to invite in outsiders and the outcasts into this intimate space with him. And often, in a very Jesus-y sort of way, invite himself into other people's intimate spaces. And the same invitation exists for you and for me today. To continue to take up the practice of living both communally and living missionally. One of my favorite scholars, Christopher Wright, says this. It is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world is that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission.
What he is saying is that God has always had a mission and been on mission. From the very beginning, God has had mission as a part of his redemptive plan, Genesis 3, to start with. And that mission is crystallized in the person of Jesus. And that mission still exists for you and I today. Christ's church, Christ's bride today, right, suggests the church, you and I, we exist to serve the mission of God. And for us, I think that the, it is best served by, by, and for us, I think that it is best served by what my friend Evan often says. That as people of the kingdom carrying on the work of Jesus, we inhale community and we exhale hospitality. We inhale community. As we breathe, as we live, we inhale community, and we exhale hospitality. Or said differently, we inhale belonging, and we exhale invitation to belong. You see, all through the New Testament, hospitality is the primary mechanism of mission, of God's mission moving forward in the world. The question for us today, as it was in the New Testament, is who is my neighbor? Who am I supposed to be hospitable with? Who am I spiritually responsible for inviting to the table? Because I don't know if you know this, but you do have spiritual authority and responsibility. As a part of receiving the grace gift of God, is, it is like you are given it in order that you do something with it. Not that you earn with it. Don't hear me wrong. But the expectation is that you receive grace that you might be a grace giver. We have long held a belief, Christian culture has long held a belief that mission or missionary or being on missions is a thing that exists for people on the other side of the world. Reaching unreached people groups or translating the Bible into new languages, serving at orphanages or starting new Christian micro businesses and all of those things belong. But God's mission of redemption is not reserved for the few. It is a command, a call, an invitation for the many. God has given you, you, a unique sphere of influence or a sphere of influence, a sphere of people that, who you interact and engage with. This most often looks like the people you already have crossover with in life. Your kids play on the same sports team, or you go to the same coffee shop at the same time, or you work together, or you go to school together, or they're brothers or sisters or in-laws or whatever it is. You're on the CASA board, whatever your thing is, whatever you're sharing life with these people on, whoever those people are, the people that are already right in front of you as you're doing life, your invitation from Jesus is to embody the kingdom of God, not uniquely to them, but everywhere you go, including to them. That is your invitation from Jesus, to embody the kingdom of God everywhere you go, including these spaces where you already interact with other people. And I do want to be clear, quick caveat, some people are called to a specific group of people or a specific geographical region in the world. But for most of us, the mission of God that we are supposed to actively engage in is with the people who are already right in front of us. The people who already exist in our sphere of influence. And sometimes it looks like the random person who you don't have much relationship with, but that winds up in front of you. We used to live, my wife and I and our kids, we had two of them at that point, I think. We used to live in a house off Hegman Road, technically off Nacelle Road. Shout out to Misty Heron because it was her childhood home. And they were building an underpass, the Hegman and Allen underpass. There used to not be one there, kids. Um, but they were building an underpass. There's a ton of construction going on. There was one construction worker we got to know. We had a fire hydrant on our property and the guy who had to like fill up the water tank five, day, five times a day and then drive it out and shoot water everywhere. He was at our house five times a day, so we got to know him. And one day I remember coming home and just like coming home from work and Jackie saying, hey, you know the water tank guy? He's coming over for dinner tonight. <laughs> and Jackie just had a conversation with this man about how he'd been living here for three months and didn't have any friends, hadn't had a home-cooked meal in a few months. So Jackie, my wife, just being the hospitable person she is, if you know her, you completely understand, uh, invited him over for dinner. And he came, which surprises me almost more than my wife surprising them does, for sure. And he came and we had a home-cooked meal and he went on and on about it because he hadn't had one in months. 
And we talked about his faith journey and his life, and we talked about our faith journey and our life. And then, like, we went on with life, and his job finished, and we never saw him again. And I don't know where he is now or what we are doing or if his faith journey has changed. I do know, um, I don't even know if I'm supposed to know all those things. Um, what I do know is that I got to have dinner with a man I didn't know and share a quality meal and hopefully, like if even in a granular sense, like hopefully just encourage him in his journey a little bit. And I think that that is Jesus' invitation for us to become more like him in that sort of way. That we would show up faithfully to the people already around us and just invite them into our lives for whatever time we may have with them. I think the invitation for us to become more like Jesus is that Jesus' people, that you and I would be peace, people of hospitality. And that doesn't mean you have to be able to like cook a five-star meal. Doesn't mean you have to be able to get the house super clean. It just means you have to be willing to open up your life to someone who needs a place to belong. And I think all of us, in some ways, can live that sort of life, can do that sort of thing. We see this all throughout the scriptures. Real quickly, I'll read just a few. In Leviticus uh, 19, verse 33 and 34, it says, When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. It's this point back to like, remember you were once a foreigner, remember how you were treated. So as you have foreigners, remember how you ought to treat them. And then it closes in verse 34, I am the Lord your God. So beautiful. In Titus 1, and speaking of people who qualify to be elders, it says that they must be hospitable people. That's amazing. It's beautiful. And then in 1 Peter 4, it says this. It'll be on the screen. The end of all things is near, verse 7. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Part of the instruction from the Old Testament law and from New Testament authors is that we be a welcoming open people, a welcoming open table who are willing to open our lives to people who we're interacting with. I love the line uh, at the end of that 1 Peter 4 quote. It says that we, would, like, that we would be as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And just like stirred in me this reminder, like hospitality is a form of grace. Hospitality is a form of grace. So I think this invitation, as we move toward close, and we are moving toward close, I promise, the invitation is that we might become keenly aware that we are people invited to bring the kingdom of God with us wherever we go. And that as we interact with people, that is not a distraction to our mission, but is an invitation to God's mission. Most often, Jesus, when he's doing like high kingdom moments, it's not because he planned them, it's because he's interrupted on the way. There's a beauty to that in the gospel story, that like the interruptions are actually sacred divine moments, not these things that ought to bother us while we're like head down trying to get our thing done. And I'm just as guilty as anyone else in the room of like doing the head down, getting the thing done. Like that is, that is how I actually get things done most of the time. And so, but we must learn and train, discipline ourselves to see the interruptions as invitations to the kingdom. I think it's important um, that as we like move into the space of, of community and mission, that we learn again to like recapture the word incarnational. I want you to think about carne asada. I know you're hungry. I want you to think about carne asada. I'm hungry. My tummy just did the thing. Just for a second. Carne literally means in the flesh. Carne asada. Now you're grossed out a little bit about carne asada tacos, but it's like flesh. It's meat. So incarnation means like in the flesh. That you and I might be people who live out the kingdom of God in the flesh. That we live out grace in the flesh. That we live out the presence of God in the flesh. Not with boisterous Bible beating, but with like present courage and commitment to Jesus. 
that we carry a long-range vision for people following, falling in love with Jesus. I, if anything, like, I hope our imaginations stir to that again, that we carry a long-range vision for people falling in love with Jesus, that we would be willing to lose the argument to keep the friend kind of stuff, that we don't hold tightly to, too tightly to politics when it comes up because it will come up, but we hold it loosely that we might hold tightly to the things that really matter. And there's a temptation here as well to just live presently to people as a good friend. But even I would suggest that that's not enough. That's not what I would say. Like when Jesus talks in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, that's not being salt and light to the world. So sometimes we need to like intentionally add some more salt to our interactions with people who are far from God. I want to read you this quote from Charles E. Moore. He says, The gospel or living missionally is not just about being present in the world, but about being the good news, demonstrating in concrete ways that in Christ there is a different kind of existence possible. When the Spirit gives birth to communities in which people can see God's kingdom of justice, peace, and joy at work, they will be drawn to it. Like, the, how could you resist the aroma of Christ? And so this invitation from Jesus to his people to live gospel or good news shaped lives, to share their lives in the same sort of way we see Jesus model for us with, with people, to share our lives with people who are far from God. Not just a quick tract or four spiritual laws, and that's not a knock fully, it, it, but it, it had its time as a part of mission in the West it really did. It had, there's a gentleman who used to, the, the, the creator of the four spiritual laws used to come preach on this stage all the time in the 1940s and 50s. And people came to Jesus in droves. So like, it is not a knock, but I think it has had its time for mission in the West. And I think it's time for us to move toward hospitality as the mechanism of mission that we see in the New Testament. Your calling and my calling to live as a part of God's mission is already in front of us. And the invitation, God will not force this on you, but the invitation is that you would partner with God as he desires to pursue redemption through your friends, to your friends and your family, through you. And I don't know why he does that. I wish I could give you, like I could write a thesis, but I still wouldn't know. I don't know why he does that, but God's invitation is for you to partner with him. There's a beautiful story from a Christian author named Rosaria Butterfield. Does anybody know the name Rosaria Butterfield? You didn't raise your hand, Ruth. You read the book. I know you know the name. Called you out in front of everyone. Called you out in front of everyone. She recorded her own conversion story and in writing and in talks about her conversion. She was a college professor at Syracuse. She's an English and women's studies professor. She's a married lesbian woman. She described Christians as stupid, pointless, and menacing. She continues after writing this article, just lambasting the church and lambasting Christianity. She receives a ton of hate mail and a ton of fan mail. The fan mail she files away, the hate mail she laughs at and throws it in the trash. But she received one letter from a Christian man in Syracuse where she lived that did not attack her, but engaged with the ideas in her article. He asked questions, he created space. She threw it away but she could not help but later dig it out of the trash, compelled by his questions, rather than the others who just threw opinions and, and angry statements at her. At some point, she reached out to this man, and through that became an invitation to dinner at this man's house. Him and his wife invited her and her spouse to dinner. And, and Rosaria Butterfield admits, I went because I thought it would be good for my research. Like I thought I would go and learn the inside scoop on this Christian thing so I could better tear it down in the public space, in the public sphere. But something happened that she did not ever expect. They became friends. They entered her world and she entered theirs. And they began to do dinner together every week. And over time, she became fascinated by her friends and their honesty, by their prayers, by their commitment to God. Fascinated in such a way that through the drawing of the Holy Spirit and the faithfulness of her friends, she began on her own in private to explore who God was. There had never been an invitation from her friends that like she had to come to church. 
there was a regular invitation into their lives, which was much more meaningful than an invitation to church ever could have been. And eventually, Rosaria Butterfield uh, was confronted by the presence and the goodness of God, and she came to her friends and confessed that she wanted to follow Jesus. In the video recording of her telling this story, someone, probably just like me, asked, how many weeks of dinners did it take until you were converted? And she laughs just like you did. Because she says, oh, it wasn't weeks, it was years of dinners. But through this friendship, she encountered the love and the faithfulness of God. In her fantastic book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, which I recommend everyone should read, she says this, Radically ordinary hospitality shows this skeptical post-Christian world what authentic Christianity looks like. Radically ordinary hospitality shows the skeptical post-Christian world what authentic Christianity looks like. And so as we really move toward closing, yeah, <laughs> that was so great. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Is that something Radical, ordinary hospitality, is that something you can do? Is that something you could show up faithfully to with your friends? I want you to think about that just for a second. Radical, ordinary hospitality shows what authentic Christianity looks like. Could you create a space of belonging for people who don't have anywhere else to belong in the world? Could you invite people into just sharing your life with you? And your life be like good news shaped, gospel shaped, that has more meaning, purpose, and fulfillment than any other story that exists in the world. Could we as a church community become more like Jesus in this way? Inhaling community and exhaling hospitality. Even even at the cost of your own reputation. Maybe especially at the cost of your own reputation. Living in the same sort of way that Jesus did. I think the time is right for us to do so. I think the time is right for us to do so. Um, I want to share with you just a bit about Advent. So Advent is, begins the last Sunday in November and goes through the month of December up until Christmas. It's the season of Advent in the church calendar. Um, and every year, and by every year, I mean last year because we're only 18 months old, we pause during Advent season. Um, as culture picks up, we intentionally slow down. And so we pause during Advent season and we don't gather here on Sunday mornings, but we just gather I should eliminate the just from that, I'm sorry. We gather in homes all across the city of Bakersfield. And this is a part of our culmination of our practice of community series, that we launch into homes for Advent season, and we don't corporately gather here. And so there's going to be a lot more information coming over the next few weeks about that, some signups and all those sorts of things. But today it just felt appropriate to ask the question as we look toward launching into homes for the month of December and sharing a meal around the table as a local church family, who do you know that needs an invitation to the table? Who do you know that needs an invitation to the table, an invitation to journey with you as you follow Christ? to a meal with some friends while you read the scriptures and sing songs honoring our Lord and share a bit of life together for a few weeks. And this is not a push. Like if you know me, you know, this is not a push to like grow a church. This is a push to lean into the inbreaking kingdom of God, where the Holy Spirit is already at work in the people around you. God is already drawing people to himself. Does that make sense? Like God is already doing this and he's inviting you to partner with him in that. I just think that as we consider what's in front of us, both today, like the table, we're going to go to the table soon, 
and Advent in homes in December, as we move toward those two things, it's really important that we don't lose sight of Jesus. And in particular, that at some point, Jesus brought you to the table. And we're going to remember that today. But there is a, a continued invitation from the scriptures for us that we be people because we've been brought to the table that also like hold our hands and hearts and lives open for others to come as well. That that reality of, of Jesus gathering you to a table, that that permeates into you, that it might overflow out of you into the world. And so as we move toward communion, I'm just going to stir like a bit of your heart. I'm going to speak to an invitation for you just to like lean into gratefulness again as you come and get the elements when you're released to do so. Just like remember the goodness of God who brought you to the table. And as we move toward communion, that's, that's where we want to like find ourselves present to God and thankful, so thankful like the joy of our singing, thankful of what God has done for us and to us. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We are overwhelmed by your goodness, your love and your kindness, your care for us. So God, we just um, beg for more of you. We beg, like just reminded of Tozer's words, like I'm thirsty, make me more thirsty, God. May we just continue to come to you and ask, like, would you pour yourself out, God? Would you pour yourself out? I just pray over my friends in the room that you'd pour yourself out on them again afresh this new, fresh this morning. As they come to, like, remember the goodness of God as we take the bread and the cup in just a bit. We love you, God. We thank you for bringing us to the table when we were far off, when we were unworthy, when we were dirty, when we were unclean. There was no reason that we should have come, nor could we have on our own accord, but God, you brought us to the table. And for that, God, we could not say thank you enough. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Um, you are released to get the elements of communion. We're going to sing just a bit, um, and then in just a bit we'll take communion together.